I was just struck this morning as I was thinking over the sermon for today that the promise made to Abram that he would be a blessing to all the nations, Paul in Galatians calls the gospel. The same message that God spoke to Abram some 4,000 years ago in Palestine is the same message that Paul preached all throughout the Mediterranean world some 2,000 years ago. The same message that we'll be looking at today here. And the same message that Pastor Paul will be preaching in Haiti through a Creole interpreter. That's a beautiful thing. Isn't it? That the same message of what God has done, is doing, and has yet to do to restore this lost and dying world, that same message undergirds all of history. And we, when we preach that message, and when we hear that message, we tap into something so much bigger than ourselves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have been at work for so long to see to it that the promise made to Abram is kept. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we ask that your spirit would now be with us as we look to your word. We pray that our hearts would be open, that your word would pierce us and transform us. Lord, may we not walk away from here the same as we were when we walked in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, naturally enough, our text is Genesis 11:27 through 12, uh, 9, which, as you know, comes at the end of Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 12 naturally follows Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1 through 11 is the story, essentially, of the world's downward spiral. In the beginning, God creates the world, and he blessed it, and it was very good. God creates Adam, and he creates Eve, and he blesses them, and they're very good. But then Adam and Eve go horribly, horribly wrong. And what ensues is a downward spiral. Mankind spirals downward, out of bliss and virility and joy that Adam and Eve enjoyed in their short stay in the garden, into exile from the garden, into brother murdering brother, into inevitable death, down to the point where the whole earth was filled with violence and all man's thoughts all the time were wicked, such that God saw fit to blot the whole of mankind out with a gigantic flood. But the downward spiral continues. Why? Well, floodwaters can't wash away evil. So mankind continues in the downward spiral to the point where men decide to consolidate their power and to take heaven by storm with 
a tower made out of clay bricks in order to make a name for themselves. And again, God curses them, confuses their language, scatters them abroad. And so where we end up at the end of Genesis 11 is with a wrecked and fallen world. Mankind, scattered abroad, scattered, babbling, confused, lost, cursed. We were in a bad scrape. And what was needed was a fresh start. What was needed was a new world, a new humanity. Enter Abram, son of Terah. This is the man that God called to basically be the father of his new humanity, of his fresh start. God gives Abram a charter for starting over. An old, an old rabbi put it this way. He wrote a, a paraphrase of the story of Genesis. And he had God say this when he created Adam. He said, I will make Adam first, and if he goes astray, I will send Abraham to sort it all out. That's the idea. But there's a twist. Abram's not who you would expect him to call. God called Abram to be the patriarch of a new humanity, of God's chosen people, of Israel, in spite of the fact that he was an unlikely candidate, in spite of the fact that it was a colossal calling, and in spite of the fact that Abraham would have to learn how to be faithful. Let's look at these things in turn. Um, Chapter 11, verses 27 through 32. Abram was an unlikely candidate to be the father of God's chosen nation. For one thing, Abram was not a kosher Jew. This you would at least expect from the father of Israel. You would expect him to at least be in line with the laws that would mark out Israel. But he wasn't. Uh, Abram had married, as we find out later in the text, his half-sister. Sarai was born of Terah from another mother. Which, this was something that the law of Moses that would subsequently be given to Abraham's people forbid. Leviticus 18.9, 20.17, and so forth. It was forbidden for a man to marry his half-sister. So Israel, later on, pious Israelites could not look back to Abram and say, look, he's one of us. He's just like us. This is, this is a good, pious, upstanding Israelite. They couldn't. What's more, it seems highly likely that Abram was a pagan. He wasn't even a worshiper of the Lord. Sarah was, in all probability, named after Saratu, the wife of the moon god Sin. The moon god was greatly worshipped in Ur, where Abram hails from. And he was also greatly worshipped in Haran, where Abram's family settled before they made it to Canaan. In fact, Joshua 24.2 says this, The Lord speaks to Israel and says, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abram, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. See, Abram's not a follower of the Lord. He's not an upstanding Israelite. He's not any of those things. 
What's more, Abram doesn't seem to have any of the qualities that marked out the heroes that have come before in the text. Think of the heroes of Genesis 1 through 11. You have Adam. He got off to a good start. He was created very good. He was perfectly innocent. He had everything going for him. Can't say that of Abram. He's born into a broken and lost and dying world and doesn't seem that he was very good. He's not like Enoch either. Enoch, it was said, walked with God. And because he walked with God, God took him and spared him from death. Well, as we've said, Abram didn't walk with God at first. Abram was a pagan. Well, what about Noah? Well, Noah was noted to be righteous amongst the men of his generation. He was said to be blameless. But again, Abram doesn't seem to have any of those outstanding qualities. Abram is a highly unlikely candidate for the call that would come to him. And perhaps the thing that the text emphasizes more than anything else is that Sarah, his wife, was barren. Being barren in those days was a mark of shame. You see this all over the place in Genesis. That One of the chief problems that is constantly being dealt with in the story of Genesis as it goes along is the barrenness of the matriarchs, the, the women in the, in the community of, of God. Rachel, Rebecca, each of them struggle with barrenness and God overcomes it. And each of them says, Lord, take away my shame. It was a mark of shame. That had to do with the culture of the day. Things were quite different back then. Then, there really wasn't an alternative career to motherhood for, for women. Sure, you could buy fields and so forth, and you could spin and so forth, but in the ancient world, the primary function of women was seen to be childbearing. And if you couldn't do that, it seemed like you weren't much good. That was the perception. And so it seemed that Abram and his wife, as a couple, were marked with shame. More than that, without, without children, without children being born to you, you were almost guaranteed not to be cared for in old age. You were guaranteed to, as you grew older and grew infirm, to have to go it alone. And what's more, once you passed away, there was really no guarantee that anyone would be there to carry out the proper funeral rites and so forth, which was seen as being vital to having a good standing in the afterlife. But more than anything else, the obvious question is perhaps, how would Abram be the father of a new humanity if his wife can't bear children? Again, this seems highly unlikely that he would be the one that would be called. He was also an unlikely candidate because it was a colossal calling. It was a huge calling. Abram is called, essentially, to be a second Adam, to be the fresh start to humanity. This can be seen in that Genesis 1 through 11 has a certain pattern, a pattern of sin, curse, and counter-blessing. For instance, Adam and Eve, they're in the garden and they sin. They break God's commandment and they eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge as they were commanded not to. 
curse. God curses them by exiling them from the garden, amongst other things. Counterblessing. The Lord promises that he will send one someday who will crush the head of the serpent, that he will put enmity between the woman or the woman's seed and the serpent. Another example. Cain. Cain and Abel. Sin. Cain murders Abel. Curse. God curses Cain from the ground such that his labor will be fruitless and causes him to be a wanderer and a vagrant for the rest of his days. Counterblessing. The Lord marks Cain so that no one will execute vengeance upon him. He is protected. Noah. Sin. All the world is filled with violence and everyone's thoughts are evil all the time. Curse. A gigantic flood wipes the whole lot of them out. Counterblessing. God saves Noah. Blesses him and promises him that he will never again do that. Tower of Babel. What about the Tower of Babel? I can see the sin. They huddle together instead of filling the earth and subduing it. They huddle together and they build a city and they try and storm heaven by building this clay tower in order to make their names great instead of God's. Okay. Curse. Well, God confuses their language and scatters them abroad. But where's the counter-blessing? Do we see a counter-blessing in Genesis 11? No. The counter-blessing comes in chapter 12. Abram is the counter-blessing to the sin and the curse of the Tower of Babel. Abram is the stop in that downward spiral that we see in Genesis 1-11. through He puts an end to it. Another way in which you can see that Abram is portrayed as a second Adam is in that there are echoes of the blessings given to Adam, who was obviously an Adam figure, and the blessings given to Noah, who was also an Adam figure, in that in Noah too, God was starting all over, having wiped out all of humanity, having wiped out all of life. Just listen, see if you can hear the echoes. God says to Adam, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Noah. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Now, Abram. This is our text. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Later on, as the Lord firms up his promise to Abram in a covenant, he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. 
and I will make you into nations, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Finally, after Abram has passed his final test and has proven faithful to the end by offering up his son as a sacrifice, the Lord says to him, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you and your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Can you hear those? Can you hear the echoes of Adam and of Noah? Blessing, multiply, fruitful, have dominion. But there's a difference. There's a very obvious difference in that what the Lord commanded of Adam and Noah to be and do, what Adam and Noah both failed to be and do, God promises to Abram that he will, in fact, be and do. Here God takes matters into his own hands to see to it that the promise and the blessing is kept for Abram. Another thing that makes Abram's call a colossal calling is that God promised him he would give him a great name. He says to him, look at the text, he says in verse 2, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. What the builders of the Tower of Babel had tried to achieve on their own strength and failed to achieve, God promises to Abraham, free of cost, if only he would obey. A great name is what kings hoped for. You see this in Second Samuel and in the Psalms. Kings hoped for a great name, and a great name by which people would say, I wish I could be as blessed as he is, and I wish I could share in his blessings. Abram was promised that great name, but there's more. In verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Up till now, in Genesis, a great deal of blessings and curses have been dealt out by God. God blesses the creation. God curses the creation. God blesses Adam. God curses Adam. God curses Cain. God blesses Noah. Blessings and curses are a key theme throughout this story. Here, Abram is told that from here on out, the touchstone, the criterion by which curses and blessings will be dealt out will be, where does someone stand with respect to Abram and his family? Abram and his family becomes that, that pillar, that fixed point. And where you stand in relation to God and receiving blessings and curses depends entirely upon where do you stand with Abram? 
Do you bless him? If you bless him, you'll be blessed. Do you disdain him? Do you dishonor him? If you do, you'll be cursed. Think of that. Think of how stunning of a calling that is. To be that pillar and where someone stands in relationship to you and to your family determines whether or not they shall be blessed of God or cursed of God. That's a colossal calling. The culmination of that is that the ultimate standard of whether you will receive blessing or curse from God is where do you stand with respect to the true seed, the true son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Do you bless his name? Do you dishonor it? What's more that makes this a colossal calling for Abram is that he was promised to be a blessing to all the nations. God promised to Abram that all the nations would be blessed in him. That is to say that all the nations would bless his name. Remember that Genesis has portrayed Abram as God's solution for the problem of a wrecked world and a wrecked humanity. Remember that the ancient Jews saw Abram as the one God had sent to sort out the mess that Adam had made. The vocation of Israel was never for them merely to be a parochial little people in a parochial little parcel of land tucked away in Palestine, keeping to themselves and living off the benefits of divine favoritism. It was always much bigger than that. There was always a cosmic dimension to what Israel was called to be and to do. In Abram, Israel was called to be and was promised that they would be blessed by and indeed be a blessing to all the nations. In fact, all the nations that had only just come to be in the cursing of the Tower of Babel as their languages were confused and they're scattered abroad. This is what Paul calls the gospel in Galatians 3.8. He saw in this text in seed form the charter for his mission to the Gentiles. For they too would be blessed in Abram. That is to say that in their blessing of the true seed of Abram, Jesus Christ, they would become partakers of that blessing to Abram. But this call... As colossal as it is, as great as it is, as bound up in God's divine favor as he promises these things to Abram, is a costly call. It doesn't come easy. Note in verse 1 of chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Abram is called to leave hearth and home, comfort and community, all that he knows, to trust in the promises that have been made to him by this God he's never met before. Remember, he's been busy worshiping this moon God, and all of a sudden this other God comes along and says, Hey, I'll make a deal with you. And he trusts And he follows and he goes. Doesn't this sound like Jesus a little bit? Doesn't this sound familiar? He who would come after me must take up his cross and follow me. Or, Master, 
Before I follow you, allow me to bury my father. Jesus responds, let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. That's a costly call. To sit loose to all that you have known and all that you have cherished before and be willing to walk away if the Lord calls. That's a costly calling. What's more, obedience to that calling did not come easy to Abram. As we would expect, he was an unlikely candidate. Abram had to grow into faith. He had to learn how to be faithful. Verses 4 through 9 talk about Abram's first steps of obedience as he takes up the challenge that the Lord has given to him. And so Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And he goes down into Canaan. And as he goes into Canaan, the Lord says, this is the place, this is the land that I am promising to you. This will be yours and, and, and that of your descendants. And Abram continues to go south. And he pitches a tent and he builds an altar. But notice this. In verse 10, Abram has just settled into the land. And as soon as he gets there, verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Abram was just getting settled in this land that was promised to him. And then there's a famine and he has to leave. Think of it this way. Think if the Lord were to promise you a brand new house overlooking the sound. And as soon as you're unloading your first boxes, it's struck by lightning, catches on fire, and you have to move elsewhere. Is that going to test your faith? Probably. Probably just a little. That's the situation you have with Abram. He is tested right out of the gates. And what's more, he's afraid of the Egyptians. These are violent people. And he goes down and he lies about his relationship to Sarah. He says, oh yeah, she's just my sister. Which was true enough, but not just his sister. She's his wife. And he allows Sarah to be taken into the harem of Pharaoh. So not only is it the case that Abram, right out of the gates, is tested, but right out of the gates he's tested and he fails doesn't look like this new humanity is off on a good foot. Um, Abram will, in fact, prove faithless many times. He will repeat his dissimilitude with his relationship to Sarah. He will say a number of times that she's not my wife, she's my sister. He and Sarah both will laugh at the promises of the Lord, thinking this is impossible. He will try and father an heir by another woman. Abram will prove faithless many times. But the overall story of Abram is how Abram, over time, and through the Lord's faithfulness, learns to be faithful. And that probably is the experience of most of us. Isn't that the case that most of us, as soon as you become a believer, it's not long before you're tested. And not many of us bear up under that first test very well. We all have to learn how to be faithful. It doesn't come natural. Why? Because we too are unlikely candidates for this colossal calling. 
application. As we have already seen, Paul quotes Genesis 12.3 and Galatians 3.8, saying, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. In fact, Paul's entire argument in Galatians and in Galatians 3 is that the promises to Abram are being kept here and now in spite of the fact that it looks like the law has served to cut off not just Israel, but also the nations from the promise made to him. Now, I'm not terribly concerned with Paul's argument right here, but mostly with his conclusions. So, again, I will just read you a smattering of texts and just listen. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That's Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That's Galatians 3.13-14. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. That's Galatians 3:28-29. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the Lord the world which has been crucified to me and I to the world for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Do you hear that? If you are of faith, you are blessed along with Abraham. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of being part of that new humanity, the new creation, the Israel of God, has come to you by the promised Spirit. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's heirs according to the promise. Nothing else matters besides being a new creation in Christ Jesus. And you may be asking, what does that look like? Well, as we've said, or as Paul said, the blessing to Abraham was the promised spirit. Being a new creation in Christ, being part of that new humanity that Abram was called to be. What does that look like? Well, it looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. And those things God will render in you by the power of His Spirit. If you are in Christ. If you are one of Abraham's children. And you may be thinking, that's not for me. I'm an unlikely candidate for that sort of thing. I'm not a person who 
follows Christ. I'm not a person who follows the Lord. Well, I have good news. Abram was an unlikely candidate. No one would have guessed that he would be the one that the Lord would call. We're all unlikely candidates. And just as the Lord would call Abram out of his good mercy to start over, he may be calling you as well. And what's more, God stuck with Abram every step of the way, as long and as hard and as faltering his steps were. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we recognize that the way that may look most promising to us is not surer than your promise. We recognize that when we are faithless and when we have not learned or shown faith, that you are utterly and truly faithful. Lord, we pray that we may tap into what you have promised to Abraham, the promise that you made to him and kept in Christ and kept in the extension of your church to the nations. Lord, we pray that we would be transformed by that and that we would trust in you as we participate in the extension of your mission to the nations. Lord, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.